From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. What can we learn about our history and ourselves just by making a meal? I'm Jamil Smith, and I'm your host for Vox Conversations. You often hear me on this show or read in my writing how I believe identity is in everything. Nowhere is this more evident than with food. We associate our favorite cuisines with the people who originally cooked them. Ethnicities and nationalities are a part of our daily vocabularies because of what we eat. Because food and identity are intertwined in this nation and in every other one, things inevitably get complicated. It's about to be Thanksgiving, one of the most widely celebrated American holidays, and one whose commonly told origin story is a Eurocentric fairy tale. It's uncomfortable to think about war and genocide as you bite into your grandmother's sweet potato pie, or as you savor that salty, smoky skin falling off your turkey drumstick and onto your taste buds. Thinking about all this, though, that's what encouraged me to reach out to poet, scholar, and author Caroline Randall Williams. You might have read her op-ed for the New York Times in the summer of 2020, In it, she addressed the continued existence of monuments honoring Confederate soldiers with the opening line that soon went viral, I have rape-colored skin. Just as the legacy of enslavement lives on in our bodies, our laws, and cultural practices, it also goes directly into our bellies. Many of the items we see on our Thanksgiving tables, much of which I recognize as soul food, can teach us a lot about America and about ourselves as Americans. Six years ago, Caroline co-authored a cookbook, Soul Food Love, with her mother, Alice Randall. In this episode, she and I discuss not only some of the very good recipes in that book, but also how Southern comfort food has become everyday cuisine, sometimes to our detriment. How do we interpret African-American culinary traditions in modern times? And what are we getting wrong? Caroline, what's your favorite thing to cook? And what's your favorite thing to eat? No, those are two different things. Ooh, what's my favorite thing to cook? I think that historically I would have said 
roasting a chicken I love because it's, to me, that's just classic comfort food. It also requires some skill. But then for a group, I make this peanut chicken stew that's in my cookbook in Soul Food Love, and people love it. And I love a big pot of something warm because it's just such a gathering tool. And then my favorite thing to eat, that one's too hard. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. What's my favorite thing to eat? Honestly, you know, this is going to sound crazy, but actually my favorite thing to eat is buttered toast with runny eggs. Lots of salt and pepper. It brings me so much joy. I look forward to it. It is like any day, any time. And like, there's never a day I don't want to eat that. Is that weird? No, it's not weird at all. I mean, I don't know. It's boring. (laughs) (laughs) It's usual is what it is. A little too usual. It's so funny that we connect food with food this way. And like, we all have such different tastes. We all have such different memories that are associated with it. How did you first come to identify or connect with food so intimately? I'm torn about how to answer this question because I can't figure out if I'm supposed to honor the ancestors or my living mother in the answering of it. (laughs) Honor honor the truth. Honor the truth. That's all. Well, the truth is, I can say in broad strokes, I came to my relationship with food through the women in my family. The two things that came to mind were my grandmother Joan's kitchen, but then also the pictures of my mom feeding me as a baby and then the earliest memories of her like doing all kinds of elaborate concoctions to try and make me happy when I was her baby girl. So food as a way to communicate love has always been sort of central to that, I guess. Mm -hmm. And it's always been part of our family stories. My first complete sentence was mommy artichoke, please. (laughs) (laughs) Which I don't know, that says so many things about me. My first sentence was about food and it was about weird food and it was polite, but it was also demanding. So... (laughs) I'd say that fits. You've requested an artichoke exactly one more time than I ever have. (laughs) (laughs) So I bet you, by the way, that you're still your mother's baby girl. How do you talk about food with your mother? Well, that question is so layered these days because, you know, Mm -hmm. we did write a whole book together. Co-writing a book is complicated under every circumstance and writing one with your mother adds an extra layer of complication, (laughs) for sure, but also a layer of insight and love. And then about food, it revealed so much. So mom and I talk about food together. We're really talking about family history. Mm -hmm. We're talking about hard truths. We're talking about shared memories. We're talking about learning each other and our ancestors through the food, through the recipes, right? And I think we're talking about how we collaborate. Like mom and I, we don't cook together that often. We cook for each other often, but not together often because we cook so differently. Like I'm a clean up behind myself while I cook kind of girl. And mom's like a mad scientist genius who gets all of the stuff done. (laughs) And then we sort of survey the landscape of the kitchen afterward and then you know, take a deep breath and clean, you know, you learn so much about each other. So how do we talk about food? What the answer is, is that food is in everything for us. It's in our history. It's in how we sit. It's in how we gather. It's in how we write what we want to write, our political concerns, our creative obsessions. Mm -hmm. Food is sort of part of all of that because food tells stories and food is about survival and Black joy for me. 
And so is everything else I do about survival and black joy. <laughs> so, I mean, it seems also like to be a method of communication. Yeah. And in being, you know, writers, we are used to communicating, I think, in certain ways. I think certainly our ancestors and our elders communicated to us through food. I remember, you know, thinking about Thanksgiving and thinking about my grandmother's macaroni and cheese with the skin on top, so to speak. And honestly, because I grew up pescatarian, you know, her making that special effort to make a little side dish for me and my mother while cooking for everybody else. And that to me communicated care and love. That to me also is the soul food that I remember, the food that literally fueled my soul. What is soul food to you? And I guess, how do we come to call it that? So this is an evolving question for me. I think that traditionally what I have said is that to me, soul food is food that's prepared with love to show that love to the people that you welcome to your table in broad strokes. That's what soul food is to me, is food that serves the body and soul of the people you love. Mm -hmm. And I think that I use that definition because of the charge and challenge of the cookbook that mom and I wrote together was really to try and reclaim narratives of health and body preservation through food in like the black story. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to get away from this notion that all of our food is unhealthy or the scope of our food is limited to the celebration food that we have traditionally in the bigger picture called soul food. And I preface that question with I have traditionally said, because I think that as I get older and as I evolve and as I, you know, I fall in love with being Black again every day. Like, I'm in love with it. I'm in love with our stories. I'm in love with the gift of this being colored in America together with the challenge of it. Mm -hmm. I do think that there is value in making the traditional lists of what soul food is, too. The collard greens, the candied yams, the fried chicken, you know, the cornbread, the monkey bread, (laughs) the hopping john, the hush puppies. The fish, you know, the spaghetti, all that stuff, the macaroni and cheese, like the list of true comfort things that like got put out on your Nana's table, (laughs) like that stuff as some iteration of soul food is valuable to name because it conjures so many shared memories for all of us. And that creates community. But I think like, so there's a challenge there that it's like you want to name the things that are like obviously familiar to the group, but then also I do feel a responsibility and a desire to expand the definition because to me it's like when I bake a fish, that's soul food to me because I know that that was what my grandfather did. He'd catch red snapper in Alabama and he'd bake them in tinfoil and that was his favorite thing. And that to me is soul food then, right? It's Mm -hmm. like clean, simple food that is soul food because it tells a Black American story that makes me feel loved and connected to my ancestors. So, You mentioned comfort food, and I see comfort food and soul food, I think, being equated quite a bit. Yeah. And soul food being, like you said, is presented in the mind as a certain set of images. You know, the fried chicken and a lot of things, frankly, that are not healthy for us. Mm -hmm. I don't know if like equating the two is always appropriate. Do you see a distinction at all? And if so, you know, why do you think that might be significant? Well, I think that, again, that to me, what is comforting and what serves the purpose that soul food serves are not always the same thing. 
right? Like I get comforted by a warm bowl of mashed potatoes or like, you know, a bunch of macaroni and cheese or greens or whatever on a plate that I can just like endlessly dive into. But that's also some version of soul food. But then to me, again, this question of like, you know, the purpose past the aesthetic, you know, that's something that I think about with the blues a lot too. Like the sound of the blues versus the feeling of it. That's sort of how I feel about soul food. It's like, the blues had one sound, like old time music had its own sound. And then it sort of evolved into like the early primitive blues, country blues. You know, then you get the blues with the electric guitars and all the different sounds that emerged in the 50s and 60s with the blues. Like John Lee Hooker sounds a lot different than Lead Belly, right? Like it's still all the blues, but there's this evolution. And to me, the blues is the sound of Black American suffering made into popular art to soothe the people who are suffering in the South, Mm -hmm. right? And that sound can change, but the spirit behind the sound, to me, that's the spirit of the blues. So the spirit of soul food is the flavors of what helps Black people survive. And you survive by being comforted, but you also survive by being well. So again, that's like the question of, can this like baked fish And these peppery vegan greens, like, can that be soul food because it keeps me well? Right. And also engages with my food history? I hope so. I mean for it to be, right? Like, so I think that there's like a question of taking comfort and healthy comfort versus self-soothing and self-medicating and all of those parts too. Like, I can't give you simple answers to these questions. Good. I don't want simple answers. (laughs) And let me just throw in another one. Soul food, comfort food, Southern food. Ah. Right? Because it's like, what is Southern food? People think they're going to go to the South, they're going to get Southern food. But I'm like, that's Black Southern food, what you're talking about. like, Because there's like, you can go to those restaurants where it's just lots of like chopped up cold meats and mayonnaise. And that's also Southern. (laughs) (laughs) But it's white. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this Midwestern boy definitely uh, did not see that uh, distinction right away. So uh, I thank you for adding that. Um, One of the things that makes me think of, though, you writing this cookbook with your mother and the connection between Southern culture and cooking, these recipes, you know, they come from your kitchen. And I'm interested to know, since I've never written a recipe myself, how do you balance your own creativity with a desire to maintain tradition? Because I know that my, like my grandmother, she would make a, a separate pot of beans without all the bacon, all the stuff that would clog up your arteries. She'd make that for me and my mother. And that was maybe not quite the dish that everyone would accept as soul food. It's just green beans. There's so much to unpack. (laughs) I'm like, first of all, we have to invite people to accept it Mm. because I think that creating those lines that are like a new social construct in some ways can get us killed. It is killing us. We're dying of diabetes and kidney failure and heart disease and obesity. Our bones are giving out because that isn't all that soul food was or is or could be, first of all. So I hear you say that and I'm like, I challenge us to expand. (laughs) And then second, I think that a lot of the work of writing Soul Food Love was about trying to bring to light unexpected things as opposed to reimagining familiar ones. Precisely for the reason that you say that there are things that are sort of canon and precious. And I don't want to rewrite macaroni and cheese and make it healthy. Like I'm not going to be offering people any cauliflower pasta with some sort of low-fat cheese and be like, this is the same thing. You're supposed to like this as much as you like the other thing. 
What I'm trying to do is invite people, like the peanut chicken stew that explores our African roots, or the sweet potato, kale, collard green, and black eye pea soup that I serve that's like fundamental ingredients in a familiar setting in a big old pot that's sustaining and that I was raised to cook and to eat my whole life. And that's very Black. It's very soulful. It's very much our ingredients. And I think inviting people to add to their list and to expand the view is more of the charge of the cookbook than like trying to use the creativity to revise familiar dishes that they were then somehow healthful. Because I think the other part of it was this question of the fact that we've forgotten the difference between celebration food and everyday food. Because if what we're saying is that soul food is in some way some celebration of Black life is this fundamentally Black food element or this food genre, we've only been exploring the greatest hits, right? Like, And I think that part of that is to do with like the crisis of food deserts in this country. It's to do with the commercial grocery store complex that allows people to just get like massive bags of sugar and like big old tubs of lard and like endless styrofoam packages of chicken that makes the things that were once celebrations like a cheap thing instead of a precious expense, you know, that you can go to Popeye's and just get like a tub of mac and cheese and a bunch of fried chicken, which used to take granny all day to prepare all of that. And now Mm -hmm. it takes us 10 minutes. And so it took away the preciousness of some of those dishes and it made them every day. And then it erased some of the everyday food ways that maybe could save our lives if we remembered them. You know, in this time when you got pandemic, you got all the things that have like bearing down on, on us and, you know, emotional eating. I think about that a lot. You mm-hmm. know, you thinking about like the everyday has to become a celebration of us somehow. And I think to a large degree, we do that with food because it's how we communicate love. Mm-hmm. And how do we do that while also, you know, like you said, not slipping into diabetes and heart disease? <laughs> it's a struggle for me. I, I mean, I have to consciously avoid some of those things, you know, because it's very tempting in, in moments of stress to just reach for something mm-hmm. that makes you feel good. I don't know. I hear that. And I come from a place of privilege in so many directions. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the privileges of my life and the way that food has been introduced to me and my family, and I was fed like classic old school soul food on the tables of my ancestresses. But on Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, big birthdays, you know, we didn't, the day-to-day, my great-grandmother who grew up on the property of her white father's family, her white father who raped her black mother in 1906, my great-grandmother, I grew up going into her kitchen every week, week in and week out, and she baked a sweet potato for lunch. And to me, I think about what do I turn to when it's a time of crisis? I think about like, how do I show that I want to survive and I want to survive. I want to be well. Mm-hmm. And I really, I don't want to ruin the precious food by turning it into something that kills me. And again, that's a luxury. It's a privilege of mine that I grew up thinking about that food in the more like old school, almost ancient at this point way of saying like, 
fried chicken, we only get that when the pastor's coming. Do you know what I mean? Dinner. Because, <laughs> like, it takes right. too long to make. It's too hard. Like, do you know how long it takes to, like, get the meat off of the bone of, like, a ham hock and a pot of grease? Like, that is hours of cooking. Yeah. Hours and hours. Like, and I was raised to think, you don't get that unless I got the time. I only got the time, like, on a holiday and a few times a year. Like, this is food that's supposed to take a long time to cook. And so I think that to me, it's more a question of figuring out how we help people to save how precious the food is by not overdoing it. Because like, I don't want to think of soul food as a sin. I don't want to think of it as like either to be good and not eat it or that I'm like hurting myself by eating it because I'm also comforting myself. I don't want it to feel like a drug. I want that celebration food part of soul food to be like some precious thing that we get to have when we want it. There are different meals that we use to tell different stories, as you've just heard Caroline Randall-Williams talk about. But how do you learn to tell stories through cooking? That's what I want to ask Caroline after a short break. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then Wise might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, Wise takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. How do you communicate through a meal? I mean, you're so skilled at communicating and at storytelling in so many other ways, so many other formats. How did you find your voice in the kitchen? I mean, I'm sitting in my kitchen. I'm sitting in front of a selection of my grandmother's 2000 cookbooks that she left me when she died. Like this is all cookbooks behind me. 
and she was a librarian and her husband was a civil rights lawyer, right? So it's like words, food, social justice, like showing love, like it's all together. Books. How did I find my voice in the kitchen? In much the same way you find your voice in the world, you listen to the women around you who you love and admire and you emulate them. And I watched the women I loved and admired in their kitchens. My great-grandmother, Alberta, was a brilliant cook. My grandmother, Joan, was a brilliant cook. My mother, Alice, is a brilliant cook. My godmother, Mimi, my mother's best friend, my mother's family of choice, my godmother became my family on my mother's side in many ways. And my godmother is a brilliant cook and classically trained herself. And she's Japanese and lived all over the world in Europe and Asia and America. So that's eclectic too. Um, But watching these women in their kitchens helped me find my voice in the kitchen because I was learning their patterns, learning their rhythms, their cadences, their tone. From the way that we clean to the way that we like pick a vegetable to the way that we like salt and pepper things, I think that that became part of it. And then, you know, in some immediate way, again, just acknowledging privilege, but we just have to and then move on and claim our narratives. Of course we do. Yes, both of us. I studied abroad in England my junior year of college. Same. I was at New College, Oxford. And it was the first time that I was like wholly responsible for what I was eating by myself because I went from my mother's home to boarding school to college where, you know, dining hall food was the primary food. And then in Oxford, I was put in an apartment with a couple of other students and I went to the grocery store and I bought food for myself and I was digging up what I remembered and loved and wanted to make for myself. And it's funny, there are a lot of those things that I conjured there, found their way into soul food love because I was like, you talk about comfort food. Like I said, I love a roast chicken. I love those like big, massive pots of soup that when you're a single black mother and you're like, I want my daughter to eat and be well, but we're just going to make a bunch of soup because like sturdy stews and big pots of things that are familiar, wholesome ingredients that my child's going to understand and love when she's a kid. Like those were the things that I turned to when I moved to England and had to cook for myself. And so I found my voice. I was like retelling my story by like just literally dragging it back to life out of necessity because I couldn't live on sandwiches forever in my own first kitchen. And then I moved to Mississippi after college to do Teach for America. And I remember like I was living in the Delta and I was bringing like baked chicken and vegetables to school every day for lunch, things that Alberta had taught me to cook. And my students would be like, Miss Williams, you eat like a white girl. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, no, I eat like an old black lady. <laughs> you know, like, because I did it. I was like, no white girl taught me how to cook this. My 1906 born on her daddy's sharecropping farm, raised by her own grandmother who was a slave, great grandmother taught me to eat this. And it gave me a voice. Like when I think, think about my food voice, like, I felt empowered to name that, to be like, no, I eat like an old black lady in the face of questioning. So it's bringing back, conjuring what you remembered during your moments of needing to survive and feed yourself. That helped me find my voice. And my voice is a composite of all of these many women. And then obviously through my own lens and my own idiosyncrasies. So I mean, hell, I'm just confused about this whole idea of eating like a white girl. <laughs> As someone who enjoyed the cuisine of Oxford, England, myself, when I was there as a high school student studying in a summer program. 
I mean, I used to go to Harvey's down on Gloucester Green all the time. And, yeah. and I was, you know, I mean, I was 16. I can barely remember, but I still remember that shrimp salad sandwich <laughs> and that baguette and how fresh it yeah. tasted. And I don't know if that's eating like someone white, but I don't know. It was good. <laughs> so I think you eat the way that speaks to you, however that is. Well, we made our list. We said soul food versus comfort food before. And then I added Southern food. But yes. then I think, I guess we have to name black food. Like mm. is soul food, black food? Is soul food a subgenre of black food? Is black food a subgenre of soul food? Because that's part of the question too. It's like, is Caribbean food soul food? Is it black food? Is it comfort food? Like, and I don't know if we need to define. I think that I love a Venn diagram because I love overlap. You know what I mean? Yes, yes. <laughs> I love layers on layers on layers, but I think that it's valuable to name that all of these things have their own culinary identities. And when we try to name one and then ask it to hold the others, it can fail. And sometimes we can name one, ask it to hold the others, and then everything is expanded in really valuable ways. But I think the important thing to do is just to name that we're dealing with many different, not just definitions, but many different categories that have complicated intersections. I think one of the things that's helping us to, I guess, elucidate those intersections would be, you know, series like High on the Hog on Netflix, mm -hmm. um, produced by uh, Shoshana Gay. I mean, you have this cultural contextualization of African-American cuisine that's happening now in popular culture. Do you feel like that's effective, you know, in terms of like helping people understand the nuances of this cuisine? Oh, my gosh. I mean, first of all, that show is awesome. And I know, like, admire and celebrate both Stephen and Jessica for the insight. And I think that representation is always valuable, is my answer. I think representation and an invitation to learn more especially when it comes to the truths of living while Black in America. It's always worth it. It's never more dangerous than it is valuable. And I think a show like that, it invites us into our power, right? Because when mm -hmm. we know where we've been, we know more of the stories, we can name the challenges, we can name the intersections, we can like chronicle the complexities. Knowledge is power. Like We use that information to inform how we move forward. One of the things I also think about, you know, just to pivot this a little bit is how we have romanticized the past. I think it used to be more, more kind of an exclusive domain of, you know, thinking about food. Okay. We think about food as something that's, you know, recipes are passed down, traditional meals and cuisines maintained throughout generations. But at the same time, you know, we romanticize that, you know, and I'm wondering if that that's necessarily always a good thing. I think about what you wrote in the New York Times about a year and a half ago. And you talked about your body is a monument, but also we are what we eat. <laughs> so, you know, if we are a monument, then I think we have to figure out how food is involved in that equation somehow. <laughs> if our body is a monument, how do we become responsible curators, like custodians of the monument? <laughs> yeah, right? like yeah how do we, exactly. How do we serve it? Yeah. yeah. God, that's a great, I love that framing. Um, and again, I think that that's part of why I'm so invested in figuring out how to reclaim or reframe certain like healthful food practices. 
Because I think that, you know, part of why we turn to food for comfort, not just because like macaroni and cheese and yams and fried chicken taste good, but we turn to it because they make us feel like we're engaging with collective cultural practices and traditions and that we're embracing pieces of our truth that maybe people don't have access to or that are specific to us. And so to me, part of the conversation is about offering additional dishes that meet that need. I want it to feel very black to eat a clean bowl of something. Do you, and clean is a fraught word these days, right? Like I don't want to fetishize the term like clean eating, but a wholesome, healthful, nutritionally dynamic bowl of food. I want that to feel very black to make that choice. And it has been in the past and it can be again. And like and I think that if we want to elevate, celebrate the power and accomplishments of our past, I want to be elevating and celebrating the women who had the tenacity, wherewithal, fortitude, brilliance to braid sesame seeds into their hair before they got loaded onto boats so that those seeds like made it to America. Sesame seeds are a part of African cuisine for millennia. And they made it to America in the braided hair of women who survived the Middle Passage. I want to get a tub of tahini from Whole Foods and feel like I'm in communion with the women who survived that, who I come from. So to me, it's about figuring out how we give fresh, different, expanded context to these ingredients, this history, so it feels like ours when we eat it. Because Because food tells our story. Because food tells stories, right? It's like, I want to see my story in my plate, right? I want to see my story in my plate. And so I don't want it to be that like, oh, well, I could eat soul food or I can like go and eat this thing that I only see like Gwyneth Paltrow eating on Goop. And I feel very like this bowl of greens feels very white and silly to me. And it's like, no, I want that bowl of greens to feel like a reclamation of what our ancestors were eating. And I want you to feel empowered to eat it, not as a departure from who we are, but as a deepening, like a reclaiming of our deep history of who we are. Right. And I don't think necessarily that you're, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you're not advocating that we, you know, by buying tahini and eating it with some pita chips, that we're immediately communicating with the ancestors, you know, <laughs> or necessarily that, that sesame seed, you know, when we consume it on a fast food hamburger bun, that's also not necessarily a, a journey to the past. You know, to what extent do I think this colonization and appropriation have to factor into this? There's a really wonderful article called Race, Ethnicity, and Expressive Authenticity. Can white people sing the blues? That's the name of the article. But in it, he talks about how the thing that saves something from being appropriative is whether or not the person who has recreated it has an appropriate relationship to the source material. Do you have an appropriate relationship to the source material? And to me, when I think about soul food, black food, particularly in this country, like the question of appropriation has something to do with whether or not the person who is producing it in the present has an appropriate relationship to the source material. Like, <laughs> like if the source material is the lived Black experience in the kitchen, you know, as a Black person, we just are allowed. Like, we are allowed to make that food, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. <laughs> like, right. 
no, that's our yeah. food. Like I got the receipt. We like, do not have to apply for a special exemption. No, yes. no. And so I think the people who are reproducing it and exploring patterns of like black food ways, Southern food ways, I think there's a lot of examining and hard conversations to be had about what right you have to profit from a food that comes from the history that our food comes from. And naming an appropriate relationship is required. And an appropriate relationship doesn't just mean looking to the past, right? Like it can be about repairing as you look to the future. You know, if I'm some young white chef who grew up and did like a study underneath, you know, I decided I was going to go and learn at the hands of the genius of a black chef who loved me, liked me, trusted me, wanted me to learn their practice. I would have to name that if I then went and started my own restaurant, I'd have to name where I learned what I learned. And I would also have to have a plan, like a deliberate plan about how I honor the gift of that and pay it forward and backward, the legacy of the history of the food that I learned to cook. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think it's a really complicated conversation. It may be a complicated conversation, but I also don't think it's necessarily a complicated concept. I think it's also important because, of course, one of these folks who, of course, writes about race and politics, I do think that race is actually in everything, race and racism. And say just with this example of sesame seeds alone, we're taking in the legacy of enslavement into our stomachs. And I don't want people to do that and not think about it. I get that it's heavy to think about. I get that that is difficult. Or even sometimes just, you know, something you want to avoid. Look, I just want to have my McDonald's Big Mac and leave me alone. I get that. That being said, we have to understand, I think, the full legacy of it. Even sometimes as it passes through our lips, we have to understand that if we ever have any hope of contextualizing it with all the other things that have happened in this country that have set us back and have any hope of moving forward and actually realizing the promise of America, you know, being true to what they said on paper. I think food is integral to that. And if we understand how the things that we take for granted every day can draw their history back to chattel slavery, then we can I think, better understand what America actually is. I'm thinking about the line you said that stuck with me was you said we're taking like slavery into our belly. Yeah, we're taking the legacy of enslavement into our stomachs. Yeah. There's so much about like the question of perspective and orient, like who's the audience for the concept, for the conversation. Because to me, like when I think about taking the legacy of enslavement into our stomachs, there's this really stark line between what we brought with us, what was forced upon us when we got here, and that what has become of that practice or those shared things in the present. Right. And I think that some of what I'm interested in is going back and taking an opportunity to celebrate what we brought with us mm-hmm. <laughs> and taking that into my stomach and then figuring out how to name better, chronicle some of how we survived before mass food production made it easy for us to only keep the unhealthy stuff that's going to get us all killed if we eat only that. Because I think that that in-between space is where soul food came from, just like it's where the blues came from, right? Like, what happened between the Middle Passage and 
chain grocery stores. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like what were yeah. like when we were farming, when we had orchards before the great land robbery, like when we had a different relationship to the land and to growing things and to raising things and to eating for fuel in a different way. Like there's so much to explore and invite ourselves into, but there's also so much trauma there. Cause you think about like eating for fuel, but like fuel for whom? Who am I working for? Like, why am I growing this? I mean, when we start talking about black food, it's so dangerous and wild, but it's exciting. Food can convey the legacy of where you've been as a people, a family, or a community. And when you talk about the food culture in a particular place, you're asking to look into that place's past. After one more short break, I'll ask Caroline Randall-Williams about the food culture right here in the city where we both live, Nashville, Tennessee. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. How's your sock drawer looking these days? Underwhelming? Is it the seat of all your disappointments? A wasteland of unmatched sandpaper rough foot sleeves? Well, this spring, you can start looking forward to opening that sock drawer again with Bombas. Finally, I have something to look forward to. Bombas socks have all kinds of features like honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. Bombas also sells clothes for other body parts like t-shirts and underwear. Also, Bombas wants to make returns and exchanges easy with their 100% happiness guarantee. So if the dryer or anything else eats a sock, or if you're unhappy with your purchase for virtually any reason, they say they'll do whatever they can to replace it or make it right. Bombas sent me a few pairs of socks a while back, and they're my favorite socks. I'm literally wearing a pair right now. I know I'm supposed to say nice things here, but it's true. So there you go. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. I want to actually ask you specifically being a Nashville native about the food legacy here. Obviously, I'm pretty new to the city. I'm still learning a lot. Where should I go to eat? Um, You should go to the kitchen of somebody that you know and like whose grandma taught them to cook. Like me, anybody's. Mine's not going to be soul food in the same way. Like, you know this. But like you need to go to black church and get invited home by somebody is what you need to do. Because that to me, that's the complicated thing is like, I really think because it's about love and the spirit in which it was prepared, it is really important to go get that food from somebody's personal table. I really think that that's part of it is that it's food that is for your loved ones. And it's a private food to me in some ways, or it's a specific community food in some ways. But yeah, 
So like Nashville, so sweat silver stands and then like go to church, get invited home by somebody <laughs> who's preparing a, a meal. Got it. Sweats noted. Okay. I, I mean, honestly, I'm thinking about how I've been hesitant to do indoor dining because of this pandemic. That's right. And obviously hesitant to go to a church because of this pandemic. How do you right. feel like that's changed our culture at all within the last year and a half, specifically with regards to being at a communal table, being together and thinking about how we communicate through food? So the first term that comes to me is just the notion of the welcome table and how, again, like so much about soul food is the spirit in which it was prepared, like to me, and the intention to serve it to people you love, to tell a story of love, right? And then I've had some really moving moments in my house in the last year and a half of cooking for myself to show myself love, mm-hmm. right? Because that's the charge of the food, right? I'm trying to figure out what story I'm trying to tell myself about myself. And I learned that that was a thing, that personal narrative thing, because I care about soul food, because food is an essential part of my story. So part of the lived experience of this time of covid Part of the way it's changed the food conversation is that it has reacquainted some of us or newly acquainted many others of us with our relationship to how food tells our story. Because, like, we've been afraid of how we could get it. We've been heartbroken by not being able to share it. We've been challenged by trying to make things that we'd never tried to make before, trying to, like, honor ourselves in private because we can't go out into the community. So I think that there's something about the preciousness of the food making process, I think has been, I mean, maybe it was underscored for a while and now we're just exhausted and ready to go out to eat again. (laughs) But there's something of it that I really feel like my sense of my food self has expanded in this time for sure. Hmm. In what way? Well, like I said, because I've been cooking differently It used to be that for me, a celebration meal was either out to eat or had many people invited over and created a lot of chaos and a lot of strife, but then also joy when I had everyone to the table. But now it's like, you know, when you're staring down the barrel of like unknown numbers of days and weeks and months when you're just going to be alone Mm -hmm. and you just still have to welcome yourself to your own table what do I want to cook? What stories do I want to tell? What cookbook do I want to open? Who do I want to remember on my plate today? How do I, you know, sustain myself and make a plan? Like my relationship to food as a part of how I honor my like full humanhood, not just keep myself well or throw myself a party, but like just navigate the ins and outs of a story. Like it's just deepened. Kellen, how does food help us discover who we are? That's kind of the biggest question I wanted to have answered when I thought about talking to you about food. The first word that comes to mind for me is want. Food is so integral to that, right? Because it's like, even like, I want this plate of, you know, grease and deliciousness, but I also want to live for a long time. I want this drink, but I want clear skin and, you know, a clear mind. Figuring out like the hierarchies of needs and wants and desires and how food serves them is so interconnected, right? So like, how does food tell us who we are? Like, food is like a way that we interact with our like urgent desires. Like, 
multiple times a day. There are desires I have, like I desire, you know, a new car. I desire to be 20 pounds thinner. I desire to make more money. I desire this dress, this handbag. But every day, three times a day, I make a decision about like, I desire this flavor, that flavor. I desire this way of feeling full or not. Like you're dealing with your desire all the time and then confronted with how certain desires interrupt other ones. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Hey, I know what you mean. And so I think food tells us who we are because it helps us prioritize. It helps us understand our own taste. It helps us understand what we can and cannot stand. Like I'm thinking about today, like after this conversation, I'm going to set the table and I'm going to put out a cloth napkin when I sit down to dinner to take myself to dinner tonight. And it might only be baked chicken and broccoli, but I'm going to celebrate myself. Right. Like, cause I want a celebration of that meal. And I mean, and you know, on another day, I might make that same meal and eat it out of the glass container that I meal prepped it in a week before with a random fork and knife that don't match. But food tells us who we are because how we engage with it helps us honor ourselves and understand our own needs and wants. It's just intimate also. It, and it's a form of self awareness to just understand what you want and how you want it and when. Yeah. When you say that food is intimate. Um, yeah. I hadn't actually really thought about it like, quite like that before. It's about the most intimate thing that we do virtually all day. Yes. A, and especially on a regular basis. You're literally taking something inside of you. I saw I grew up going to church. I mean, that was the thing, you know, every week they were like, here is Jesus. Put right. him in you. Here's his body and his blood. <laughs> and you're like. Take it into ah, your body. Right, like that's that was some heavy stuff as a kid. (laughs) I know it's communion, right? It's that transubstantiation, like your body and blood, like you're building your own body and blood. And when you offer food to people, you're creating something that's going to become of them, and you're offering it to them. Like I'm offering you something that's going to become of you. It's wild. It's a wild thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) Food is wild. I just want to end it there. Thank you, Caroline, for joining me for Vox Conversations. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed this. I enjoyed it so much too. Thank you for including me in this conversation. My pleasure. Vox Conversations is produced by Eric Janikas. Our editor is Amy Drostovska. Paul Robert Mouncey mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder, and Amber Hall is the Deputy Editorial Director of Vox Talk. If you like the show, please let us know. If there's room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we can improve. And if you have ideas for future guests or topics, please send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends, your family, and everyone who you think might benefit from it. And please be sure to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And come back next week for a brand new episode of Vox Conversations. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds. 
thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.